Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3. We are continuing in the genealogy in 1 Chronicles, which has brought us to Abraham. We get so little out of the, the genealogies because we are we are not as familiar with the names as we, we ought to be. It is true, probably no generations were very familiar with some of the names, but, but some of the names were once upon a time uh, famous, and the mere mention of the names would have evoked in the readers or hearers all kinds of things, important events, the revelation of profound truths, and certainly uh, God's dealings with, with Abraham, just full of all of those things. So we pick up with um, Romans chapter 3. We have considered what was revealed concerning uh, the person and even the mediatorial office of the Lord Jesus during the patriarchal age, the age of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we're turning our attention to another important doctrinal topic and the enlargement of understanding at that time, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Pick up with me, Romans 3, uh, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. 
Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to right Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also and the father of the circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. 
Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I find that as I get older, my mind travels back uh, more and more frequently to my childhood. I'm not sure that I can say that I understand why this happens. And most of the time, it's not intentional. I just find my mind wandering and going back there. The whys and the, and the wherefores, I, I'm not always altogether sure. Sometimes I think that that my mind is searching for answers to some of the riddles of my own life, my myself. Um, sometimes it's looking for other things. Um, helps so that I can I can live in greater sympathy and and understanding with my with my own children understanding and living and reliving a, a child's experience and a child's perspective but at least sometimes at least sometimes it's the mysteries and my mind just just wanders back there maybe sometimes i'm looking for for something authentically human I, not authentically human in the most important sense because only only jesus was that but authentic in the sense uh, before i became so adept so capable at self-deception and and clouding issues I mean, like all other children, I was I went forth from the womb speaking lies, but at least on some things, you had to reach a certain level of maturity to know that that maybe maybe there might be some advantage to being deceptive or something like that. So I can remember very distinctly uh, lying in in bed at night as a child and wondering about God and what I was hearing about God from my mother and what I would hear about God when she took us to to church and I would wonder is it true and I would think about that and probably even more more pressing than that great question was what are what are the implications for me at that time i don't remember ever having a question as to whether or not i was a sinner 
like a broken, ruined, misfunctioning creature. That was obvious to me, and it hadn't even occurred to me at that point to try to fool myself in that regard. I would get to that later on in life, but I, it hadn't occurred to me at that time. And so I, I remember wondering, what's going to happen to me? Is there such a thing as hell? Well, I, I remember thinking about that. In, in some ways, I think in those hours, maybe I took as honest a, a look at that terrible reality as I ever have in my in my whole life. And it it was troubling. It's interesting. Uh, later on, I would be taught in the Bible and be taught by the Bible and the history of theology that this is this is the great issue for us, right? Uh, of course, the doctrines pertaining immediately to God are the most important doctrines, but with respect to this doctrine, is there any way for a fallen creature to be reconciled to holy God? Is there any sort of way that um, we might escape the strict application of justice? Like nothing could be more important for us, or in our case, everything is at stake for us. And I knew that. But a couple of things, so that's important. In those, in those honest moments, and even in those early years, I was able to see that with some, with some clarity. But then something else happened that was really important. I do remember one night distinctly um, coming down and, and asking my mother about this terrible situation. Uh, now, all these years later, and knowing my mom, I, I, could, I can guess what she said to me. I have no reason to doubt that she did not give me anything less than a clear presentation of uh, gospel truth. But it's really interesting that even while even while the problem was was resonating in my soul, I can't remember a single thing that she actually said like I was altogether deaf to the solution that I was desperately seeking. And that seems to be important too, because uh, later when I would grow up and I would start to look around, humanity, fallen humanity's peculiar blindness to the solution is really striking. It's really striking. But uh, a third thing that's also very interesting is um, even without an answer, I, I would learn what it was to, to suppress the discomfort. And so probably for 10 or 12 years, I, I learned something by the way of self-deception and I, it, 
I, I pressed the problem down and handled it by refusing to focus my, my mind on it. That is also something that human beings do. And I'm so very glad that, that God was pleased not to leave me in that particular uh, condition. Well, as I said, as I would grow up, I would find that uh, I am not alone in this, in this peculiar blindness to the remedy that, that God provided. And perhaps those early experiences was providing, a, providing or a hint or a clue to what was, what was to come. I would find that as I learned something about world history and about the pagan religions, uh, even in the midst of the great diversity of deities, beliefs, practices, they all seemed to be rather unified in this, that they were all seeking to establish their own righteousness on the road toward a, a happy eternity. Uh, it was usually some kind of conglomeration of like at least some subset of the law that's written in our hearts of so some portion of that arbitrarily pick a portion of that maybe something that we can do and then uh, maybe some sort of religious ritual observance to make up for what we don't do and maybe in that maybe in that math in that calculus there will be there will be enough for a happy eternity but at the end of the day it's all our righteousness our performance our morality and then our our doing of the cult as it as it were and then something peculiar when you begin to study the bible the doctrine of justification by faith alone was established in the Jewish church from its first founding in uh, Father Abraham. We read about this in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. We read that uh, Abraham believed God and that was reckoned to him. It was accounted to him as righteousness. But then 2,000 years later, if we, if we understand what, what Paul is saying, somehow the Church of the Jews lost this great truth. And isn't that a remarkable thing? So this is the, this is the great need of mankind. This is the great need of everyone that was born into that church. How can I be reconciled? How can I, as a fallen, filthy, corrupt sinner, how can I be reconciled to a perfectly righteous God? And God gives them the answer, and somehow they lose it. And as Paul says, very much like the Gentiles, they go about trying to establish their own righteousness by law-keeping and some cultic practice. But then, then Paul uh, draws this great doctrine into the foreground. 
he states it with simplicity and clarity. He looks at it from multiple angles. He enlarges upon it. He elaborates it. He shows its manifold connections to other things. And what do we find in the in the post-apostolic church except except that it's only there implicitly if you if you read the early church fathers you will find that they know that jesus work and in some particular and special way his his death has provided uh, what was needed for acceptance but all of that razor-sharp clarity that you find in the apostle is is simply not there and if i could digress for just a moment for those of you that are interested in issues pertaining the, to the text of the new testament one of the myths or fables that's told by scholars is that um, when you're comparing readings of ancient manuscripts, those that are more, those that are simpler theologically are more likely to be uh, original because scribes were likely to uh, elaborate and enlarge upon the theology of the apostles rather than making it simpler. It's kind of an evolutionary mentality, but nothing could be more ahistorical what you find is that the apostolic theology is delivered in the Bible is like a great mountain peak. And the church fathers immediately fell off that mountain peak, not, not necessarily to perdition, but they were able to understand and appropriate um, only a, a small portion of what had been taught in the scriptures, only a small portion of what had been taught in the, in the New Testament. And so you have the absurdity in, in matters of text criticism of them saying that that um, theological pygmies um, elaborated upon the theology of spiritual giants. It's absurd. And if you want any proof of it, just pick up a volume of the post-apostolic fathers and you'll and you'll read and you'll see and compare it to your New Testament. You'll see that's you'll see that's the case and that's not to take anything away from them that's just to say that the um, the church has been contemplating the writings of the inspired apostles for two millennia and still have not gotten to the bottom of it that's just a little digression and clue on a on a different subject but at any rate it is very interesting that the church had been given this bold explicit teaching on the doctrine of justification by faith alone and seems to have uh, been unable to appropriate it in that distinctive clarity. And so look at what we've, we're finding. Uh, we find it, found it among the pagans. We are more surprised to find it in the Jewish church. They lost it altogether and started to establish their own righteousness. And then the post-apostolic fathers have the, the apostles' voice ringing in their ears, and they still can't, they still can't uh, appropriate it. 
probably the greatest early student of the Apostle Paul was the uh, inimitable Augustine. Uh, and uh, he does deliver to the church uh, that great truth that if man is going to be saved, whatever is necessary for that salvation, God is going to have to supply it because man doesn't have any of it. Man is altogether spiritually bankrupt. Salvation is going to have to be 100% of the Lord, and so we trust him for that salvation. So in Augustine, again, you have implicit the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But even the great Augustine does not make a razor-sharp distinction between justification and sanctification the way that the way that Paul does. Again, it's implicit in Augustine, but not explicit. And um, in some ways, maybe that's a little surprising. But it really would not become explicit until um, the Reformation. And let me read, so we've now got it inscribed in, in books for our for our children to have in that kind of razor-sharp clarity. Let me just read it to you from our larger catechism, question and answer 70. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which he pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, I remember years ago reading this point. Uh, E.B. Eliot makes this point in his Horae Apocalypticae that... Um, Church history really had to wait until Martin Luther for that razor-sharp distinction between justification and sanctification to be made. Luther's mind, his great legal mind, and his poor tortured soul ultimately would be, would be the means that God would use to revive uh, this Pauline teaching and all of its in all of its clarity and bring it before the gaze uh, of the church again. And it has ever since been like the distinctive teaching of uh, the Reformation. And of course, um, the Roman Catholic Church, while in a very general and vague way, is going to want to say that salvation is by God's grace and that it's by faith, they're going to deny the alone part. And even while they're shy about it in their official pronouncements, they're going to uh, bring in, like ultimately we are we're going to be justified by the righteousness that has been infused into us. And then, of course, the maintenance of that is going to uh, involve our works and our our faithful participation in the in the sacramental system. 
um, reading Roman Catholic theology on, on this is, is not always easy because it does it does seem like there's some purposeful obscuring of uh, of the issues maybe a, a desire to to retreat into into issues that were only vaguely defined and and considered before but ultimately they're going to deny that um, justification is by is by faith alone they're going to deny that razor sharp distinction between justification which pertains to our legal standing before god and sanctification which has to do with the remedy of the corruption of our of our nature but that's what paul did augustine carried it forward at least at least implicitly in his doctrine but but the reformation brought it into the into the foreground again that there are really two great needs of man one has to do with our legal standing before the law we are we are guilty and so we are liable to the punishment that the law prescribes so there's the legal aspect and justification the imputation of the righteousness of christ and um, his atonement paying the penalty that is due to sin that is that is the the legal remedy and that is received by faith alone and then the gift of um, of the spirit and um, his uh, willing and working of his own good pleasure in the life of the believer transforming us into the image of christ that is that sanctification that is the remedy for for our corrupted nature uh, but we have been harmed in more facets than just one by by sin and the solution that jesus has brought uh, is a solution to to each and every facet and that legal facet is pivotal it is it is pivotally important well it's interesting a couple of things to note after the reformation era for some reason we still find it hard to communicate i won't i won't labor the point but even in reformed circles circles that still have the confession of faith and the catechisms uh, there has been controversy over this this great doctrine again confusion again but maybe to bring it to bring it closer to home and maybe to retreat back into the intimacy and the and the and the quiet of a child's dark bedroom i all the time wonder um, with with my own children and with the with the children of our church are they understanding the gospel so of course uh, our children are are going to grow up with with the law in front of them that is as it should be and it's fine because 
part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach them how to live. This is pleasing to the Lord. That's not pleasing to the Lord. This is pleasing to the Lord. That's not pleasing to the Lord. But knowing how, how obtuse fallen flesh can be concerning this, uh, how we can, how the answer can be right in front of us and yet we can be blind to it. I mean, look, generations of, of Christian people with the brilliant clarity of the apostles teaching in front of them just somehow couldn't, couldn't get it. And I don't know fully how to explain why it is. I just know for whatever reason, fallen sinners just have, a, have trouble understanding this. And I do know from looking at children that grew up in good homes, homes where I knew that the gospel was, was ringing in their ears, that it wasn't just like law, 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 work your way to God's good pleasure or something like that. Nevertheless, they came away from their homes thoroughly convinced, in spite of what they heard, that if they were to please God, it was going to be as a result of their as a result of their own efforts. But this is our great need. If I if I could uh, show you another snapshot I remember early on in my in my own Christian life, uh, a popular evangelist saying something like, "Imagine that you are standing before God, and God is asking you why He ought to admit you to heaven. How would you respond?" And then he went on to give a, a tolerably clear presentation of the gospel, and I heard that. And it was meaningful to me at the time. And then I went to school and became more theologically sophisticated, and it wasn't meaningful to me. It sounded kind of childish. And now, I don't know, 30 years later, I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that that was right. <laughs> it was right the first time. Um, because the simple fact of the matter is, you won't see this with your eyes, but we do stand before the judge of heaven and earth and... Uh, we are in the defendant's seat, and we are asking for our plea. And the simple fact of the matter is, if we plead any of our own merits, even if we bring the Savior's merits into view, uh, if we say something along the lines of, I've been pretty good, and I think maybe he's made up the balance, the gavel's going to swing, and we are going to be denounced as guilty and remanded over for punishment. You don't, again, you don't see that with your eyes, but that, that is the spiritual reality. It is just as real as your backside sitting in that hard seat. It's a real thing. Um, it is only when we, when we rest our case upon our defense attorney and rest it completely upon him that the gavel will, will swing and we will be justified. That will be the declaration, but not with our own righteousness, but with the righteousness of another, as Paul says in Philippians 3, even, even with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a perfect 
righteousness. And then the frame of reference with respect to our our dealings with God is wonderfully transformed. We are no longer to face him as judge, but then the judge descends the bench, adopts us into his family, and then we deal with him as uh, father. So the things that we do um, when we're obedient, he has a fatherly pleasure in those things. Um, when we're disobedient, we might evoke his fatherly displeasure. And uh, understand that's nothing to be trifled with, but it's not the same as facing him as, a, as an angry judge. The frame of reference has changed. But that plea that we make is quite literally everything. And he won't share the glory of salvation with any other. And so we need to be clear. And we need to check our clarity because, because look around. Look around you in the land of the living. Look around you in history. Look in the pages of scripture. This doctrine can be shining like the noonday sun and fallen flesh. We're all like moles. We're unable to see. We're unable to open our eyes to it. It's a it's a peculiar uh, thing. So let's just very briefly. Um, we're going to get. We're going to make our way to. Uh, to the enlargement of this doctrine. Uh, in the age of Abraham, but just to review where we have been, turn with me in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter three. And I want to show you that even before we get that express statement from Moses in, in Genesis 15 that, that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, we do see the doctrine already implicit in the first uh, proclamation of the gospel and what, what follows afterwards. Genesis 3.15 and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we do not have to guess concerning the, the identity of the seed of the woman or the serpent. First John chapter 3 uh, puts it together for us and puts it together expressly. The seed that will crush the head of the serpent is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ and um, the serpent is the devil now there's a there's a wonderful thing here to notice and I just notice it by way of harmony it's interesting that the very first temptation of the certain the serpent is to call God's word into question it's like the, the opposite or the inverse of faith, to try to get the, the woman to doubt the word, which in the event he successfully does. And it's very interesting by, by way of harmony and uh, proportion that, that God has so constructed our redemption 
that it's going to come to us by believing the word and trusting. So, so the fall came in doubting, but the Lord has designed salvation so that it's going to come through trusting. And there's something about that that is elegant. There's a beauty and proportion. So, so here is uh, a promise delivered, and I do believe we see we see evidence of our first fathers responding in faith. And th this is something that's worth saying about doctrinal construction. Um, you don't always have to have the express words. Words refer to things, and if other words are used to refer to the things or indicate the things, the things are the things are present. So you won't find the language of faith per se, but you have a promise here clearly given in 315. Interestingly enough, implicit in the promise is the recovery of Eve herself, the enmity put between her and the serpent. So she had allied with the devil against God. God said he's not going to allow that to stand. God is going to recover her from the evil one and establish an enmity uh, between them. So there are implications for the woman that we'll come back to, because I think we will find her responding in faith. But then, uh, after having judged the serpent in verses 14 and 15, in the midst of which judgment he delivers the gospel for the first time and gives Adam and Eve hope. In verse uh, 16, uh, you get the judgment upon the woman, in verses 17 through 19, you get the judgment upon the man, and then you get verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, some, some will take this with... So, remember, all Scripture is to be interpreted contextually, and it's so interesting to find verse 20 here. Uh if nothing other was in view other than, say, the be fruitful and multiply, Eve's going to have a lot of kids, you would actually expect to find this verse after the, the declaration of those benedictions in chapter 2. God says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And then you might expect Adam to then turn to his wife and say, I will call you Eve because you are going to be the mother of all living. That's not where we find it. We find it here, right after the declaration of these judgments, and then right before God gives them coats of skin and then drives them out of uh, the garden. So what, it, what immediately goes beforehand to which Adam appears to be responding is, are these judgments? Some take it to be Adam's belief of, his, of the implication in the judgment on him and his wife, which which judgments do imply that the race of men is going to continue. And so some take it in this regard that uh, it's still just a, a reference to temporal generation, but you would still have a, a belief in what God has just told them, that Families are going to be hard, but there's still going to be families. Work is going to be hard, but there's still going to be a work. There's still going to be provision and so on. 
However, I, I tend to think that uh, Adam is reaching back here in response to that first proclamation of, of the gospel that had that special bearing upon Eve and her and her seed. It seems to me that it fits tightest contextually uh, with that in in the concepts that are being elaborated. Not simply, he's not simply observing the fact that the race of men are continuing, but rather that there is um, that Eve is going to not just be the mother of all physical living people, but that there are going to be those after her that share her spiritual life. They're going to look like Mama Eve spiritually. They're going to uh, share share her her faith and her hungering and thirsting after righteousness and so on. Um, so uh, I do think that the, the strength of the argument is actually that in verse 20, Adam is responding in faith to, to verse 15, to that first proclamation of the gospel. But however you take it, he is responding in faith to what God has just said. He is, he is believing and he's responding to it. And I won't do it at great length, but again, in the naming of, of Cain in chapter 4, verse 1, and if you want, you can go back and and listen to earlier sermons in First Chronicles where I talked about this at some length, but I do believe that in the naming of, of Cain, uh, Adam and Eve do indicate their belief in a coming Messiah that would be both both God and man. Uh, man a, a man had been promised to them, a, a real human being in 315, a descendant of Eve, but they'd also been assured that only God could cover their sins. Only God could cover their, their shame and their, and their nakedness, as it were. Nothing less uh, would do. And then also, um, uh, sacrifice we know is, is prefiguring that great, that great sacrifice to come and the sacrifice that had already been alluded to in verse 15 Adam and Eve practiced it, and uh, they they passed it on to their children. All of this to say that Im implicit in the fall account and uh, what follows, you have evidence that they have responded to the gospel call in faith, the seeds of the doctrine of justification by faith. Again, a lot of a lot of this is implicit. It will be brought in, brought out into bold relief in, in Genesis chapter 15 and made very explicit. We'll come to, to that more next week, but it does appear to be implicit, but, but already tolerably clear and no new thing when uh, Abraham, as a matter of fact, when Abraham is going to be given the same promise with respect to seed and he's going to respond as uh, Father Adam and Mother Eve responded. He's going to respond in faith, a, a justifying faith. Well, we'll come to that next week, but uh, let me just leave off with a, with a reminder. My old philosophy do professor, Dr. Martin, always used to say, you, you can't think too clear a thought, and that's true. 
And the more important the issue is, the, the more important it is for us to be clear. And, and we know this, right? Um, if you imagine, if you had a, a serious metal, medical condition and you're looking for answers and you're talking to, to a doctor, you want him to have razor sharp clarity. The more, the better you'd like razor sharp clarity down to the very last molecule, if you can get it right. I mean, the, the more is at stake, the more, the more we need to be, uh, the more we need to be clear. But with respect to the great business of the soul and its eternal destiny, will it be uh, eternal life in heaven, enjoying uh, the presence of our blessed Jesus and, uh, and the people of God and innumerable companies of, of angels for all eternity? Or will it be... Uh, in eternity in hell with the with the gnawing of conscience that that worm that never dies and never stops and suffering and in body and soul while we lament what fools we have been i've tried to sketch two things first of all the doctrine of justification by faith alone is presented in scripture is presented Constantly, it is also presented clearly and simply. That is true. But it is also true that for whatever reason, fallen human beings have been almost hopelessly obtuse and blind concerning this issue. That is also a demonstrable historical fact. And we don't want to find ourselves in the midst of the blind on the last day. We don't want to find ourselves in the midst of the obtuse. Uh, we want we want to be clear. And if there's anything worth laboring over clarity, then it is then it is certainly this. At least for you and for me, because everything is at is at stake for us. Let us pray together. <clears throat> 